We're going to continue our Advent series this morning. We're in a four-week series called Jesus is King, and we are celebrating the royal reign of King Jesus when he comes to earth at the Advent, born a child, but not just any child, a royal child. And uh, we've kind of been looking through this, or we're going to look through this, kind of through concentric circles, that Jesus is the king of the Davidic line, the prophesied king of Israel, king of heaven, and the king of earth. And we said that was good news. It's good news that Jesus is king. And this week, we're going to talk about the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. The title of the message is The Kingdom of God. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we prepare to read the word of the Lord. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. I just have one verse for you. Romans 14, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we welcome you into this space. And God, we ask that you would give us a revelation of your kingdom, a revelation of your good nature, a revelation of your love for us. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in this place today. Will the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my God and my King. I'm asking that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that could understand what the spirit of the living God is saying to us in this place on this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, say amen. And you may be seated. Amen. Jesus is king of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you get to travel overseas much. Uh, Michelle and I have been able to take a few trips overseas. Certainly now that we have little ones, we don't get to do that nearly as much as we'd like, but we look forward to, at some point when our kids are grown, getting to do that a little bit more, more often. And um, if you're like my wife, who is our trip planner, who is the one who does all the details, I am the trip uh, provider. I pay for it, and she plans it, and it works for us. Uh, and I show up and I carry the bags. That's my role. I love it. And she makes everything else happen. And so you know if you're planning on going on a trip, especially one overseas, you've got to do your research. You've got to figure out where you're going, what you're doing, when you're going to eat, where you're going to stay, and all those good things. And you learn enough to make sure that those 7 or 14 days are as smooth as possible, that you can get in, enjoy yourself, and get out. We were talking to some friends of ours who are contemplating moving overseas. So relocating their family to a new country, to live there, to put down roots there and start life in an entirely new nation. And it got me thinking that there's a huge difference between visiting a new country and moving to a new country. Because when we went to Scotland or when we went to Paris, like we, we had to learn enough to survive. But if you're moving to a new country, you've got to learn enough to assimilate to become a part of that nation and to become a part of that culture. So that's a different type of research. You know, you've, you'd want to know about the geography, the major cities, the, the cultural climate, the language, the slang, maybe even the accents and all these things, what the roads, what side of the road you drive on money, all those stuff. You've got to begin to learn and, and understand. And I just, I began to think, you know, as I was writing this, I said, what, what, if, what if Michelle and I decided that we're just going to uproot ourselves and move to Australia. Don't, we're not going to do that. Um, because have you seen the wildlife in Australia? Oh, my goodness. Listen. I, ugh, okay. 
I like, <laughs> I have friends who work in construction and they call me a carpet walker. So just so you know what kind of, uh, they say I have soft hands is what they say. Um, if, if you understand what I'm saying. I don't, I, I don't need all that mess in Australia is all I'm trying to say. But I began to think if we were moving there for whatever reason, man, we would want to learn all of these things. But the reality is if we showed up in Australia trying to become citizens and we just walk in there and start speaking in the accent and about things that occur there like good day, rugby, and bluey, and magpies, and, and outback, like that's not enough to get a citizenship in Australia. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's more that needs to happen than know what goes on there. See, knowing those things is something an Australian citizen would know, but knowing those things does not make one a citizen of that country. There's a lot more that's got to take place in order for you to change your national identity. If you see where I'm going with this, there's a transaction that's got to take place, a declaration and a commitment. In many countries still to this day, you've got to revoke one citizenship in order to get a new one. You can't hold dual. And this is how it is, I believe, in the kingdom of God. See, there are things that citizens of the kingdom of God know and do. But just because you know those things, and even just because you do those things, does not mean that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. The way you become a citizen of the kingdom of God is that the king allows you access, and he grants you citizenship. And you revoke your citizenship to the world, and you trade that in for a passport to the kingdom of God. And as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you begin to behave and look and act like your king. There's a transaction that's got to take place beyond just understanding what it's like there. And this, I believe, is one of the problems that Paul is addressing when he's writing this letter uh, to the churches in Rome. The Christians in Rome were in this steady conflict. What you've got to understand is the churches in Rome, the Christians there, were made up of Jews and of Gentiles. And they were trying to figure out what is the right way to follow Jesus. What's the right way to do church? What's the right way to gather together? What old laws and customs do we have to adhere to? Which ones do we no longer have to adhere to? And so they were always in this battle over the right way to follow Jesus. What's permissible and what's impermissible. Whether Gentiles need to become more Jewish or whether Jews need to become a little bit more Gentilish. But Paul is saying that the kingdom of God is not a simple set of practices you do or don't do. It's about so much more than that. It's about declaring that Jesus is now the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. And as such, you pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. And you allow his Holy Spirit to begin to rewire you and transform you from the inside out. And the evidence that you are a citizen of the kingdom manifests itself in the way that you respond to and treat other people. Do you live a life that looks like your kings? Do you live a life that looks like Jesus? Because that is what you will find in the kingdom of God. So let's talk about what the kingdom of God is for a second. And thankfully in scripture, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot. It's one of his main messages and he gives uh, wonderful illustrations and stories explaining it for us, except that if you read them all together, it becomes a little bit muddied on how to understand what exactly Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is. For example, Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet he would start preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's not of this world, and yet it is also very much right here and right now. 
He says that those who have been born again, born of water and born of the spirit, those who have been born again will see my kingdom. And yet he also says, my kingdom is revealed in ways that cannot be observed. He says, my kingdom is so valuable. It's like a precious pearl or a treasure hidden in a field that if you stumbled upon it and actually caught sight of it, you would sell everything you had just to get it. And yet it's a kingdom that's not available for purchase. So the kingdom of God is the invaluable, invisible, internal space where God's sovereignty is recognized and where King Jesus reigns supreme. I believe what Jesus is trying to illustrate for us is that the kingdom of God is within the hearts of men and women who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been born again as a new creation in him, now a citizen of a new kingdom. You don't act like the king to become a citizen. As a citizen, you act like the king. And I'm laboring on that point because we take the shortest path to our destination. We want to take the path of least resistance. And you can hear a message like today and go, great, all I need to know is I need to behave a certain way so that God will, God will accept me as a kingdom citizen. And what I am trying to belabor is that that's backwards. God has welcomed you into his kingdom as long as you profess Jesus as the Lord of your life, you repent from being the Lord of your own life, you acknowledge him as the new Lord of your life, and you receive forgiveness from God, and you say, Jesus, you are not only my savior, but you are also my Lord. And that's the moment of salvation where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and begins to change you from the inside out, and you produce the fruit of somebody who lives a new life. We've got to get it in the right order. See, again, the passage we're reading, what Paul is talking about, he's talking to these Christians who are in this battle over physical things, material things. They are specifically, in this passage, they are discussing whether you have to eat kosher food and whether or not you're allowed to drink wine. Now, I know most of you are fine on the kosher part, but you're kind of going like, Let's, can we talk about the wine part? <laughs> Just like if you had to say, what would Paul have said? And in Christ, you have liberty over what you eat and over what you drink. But you do not have the liberty to have a new master other than Jesus. And anything that has mastery over to, you become a slave to. So you can drink wine, but once it has mastery over you, it's a problem. You're going to have to be willing to sacrifice at the altar of your king. Same thing with food. Food can have mastery over you too. We try to act like food and drink are two different things. He says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. Some of us can overindulge in what we eat and call it okay. Some of us can overindulge in money and think it's okay. In shopping and think it's okay. In the attention of others and think that's okay. Because as long as I'm not drinking or smoking, God thinks I'm fine. And what Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's not a matter of physical things. It's a matter of spiritual things. Nothing should have mastery over you except for King Jesus. Because in the kingdom of God, there is a higher set of virtues and values. The kingdom is not about what goes in your mouth. It's about what comes out of your mouth. So you have Christian liberty and thank God for it. What a grace of God. But if that liberty must be expressed by you in such a way that it causes your brother or sister in Christ to stumble, you have to be willing to lay it down. 
because kingdom citizens live sacrificial lives of deference and service to others because kingdom citizens behave like Jesus who lived a sacrificial life of deference and service to others. The kingdom of God, Paul is trying to say, is not made up of physical things. It's made up of spiritual things, things like righteousness and peace and joy. And we're going to focus on those three things today. And as I do, again, I want you to hold in tension this reality that citizens of the kingdom of God take what they have received from God and in turn give that to the world around them. This is the way that this works. And so the first thing Paul says you're going to find in the kingdom of God is righteousness. Righteousness. And when I think about righteousness, I think about the famous movie line, uh, you're not from around here, are you? Because I want that to be the thing that's said about you when the world sees the way that you live your life. When they come into contact with your behavior, with your decision-making, with your gentleness, with your kindness, with the way that you prioritize your life, with the way that you speak about your spouse, with the way that you raise your children, I want the way that you live to be so other than the way that the world lives that people see you and go, you must not be from around here. Who raised you? Who taught you how to do that? Because righteousness is living an upright life, a morally excellent life, which is so different from the way that the world lives its life. Righteousness is the antithesis to selfishness and self-promotion and self-satisfaction. And we're in a world and in a culture where that's what life is about. Life is about me. But Paul is saying, no, 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 in the kingdom of God, what you're gonna find there is a people who live lives righteously. Now, there's a couple different types of righteousness that I want to talk on. The first is the righteousness that you receive from God. In order to get into the kingdom of God, you need to receive righteousness from God. You get into the kingdom of God, not by your actions, but by Christ's actions. It's his righteousness that the Bible says is imputed onto or put onto you that makes you able to then enter the presence in the kingdom of God, having been born again in Christ Jesus. There's a righteousness that we receive, but I don't think that's the righteousness Paul is specifically talking about because Paul is talking about living a life above reproach, living a life in a way that nobody who comes in contact with you would have a reason to sin. Nothing about your actions would cause another to stumble, which means you live your life so mindful of the decisions and the behaviors that you make and that you take. It's for you to be so intentional with what you do and with, you, with what you don't do, to be so morally exemplary in your life that your attitudes and actions communicate something to all the people around you that you're really not from around here, are you? You must be a part of a different type of people. You must know something that I don't know. You must have seen something that I've not, not seen because I don't know very many people who live life the way that you live life. In other words, Paul's not talking about the righteousness we receive, but the righteousness we do. Easiest way to define righteousness is just right living. Living life in a morally upright way, according to God's standard. The NIV translate this. I think it's beautiful the way the NIV translate this passage. It says, uh, they translate righteousness as a living a life of goodness. Living a life of goodness. Living a life that looks like Jesus' life which means that we care for the widow and for the orphan and the poor. 
which means that we practice hospitality and generosity, which means that we turn the other cheek and we respond in gentleness, and that we forgive first and we forgive quickly and we forgive again and again and again and again. We live our lives in a way that allows us to walk upright before the Lord, not in a way where you have to cower in shame and embarrassment as you approach him, but you live your life in a way that the Lord your God would be proud of. That's the aim and the goal of the Christian life, to look at Jesus and say, how can I be more like him? And now, listen, I know that's a high standard, that's a high bar, and that's tough to do. But living a life of righteousness is not something you do by yourself. It's something you do in community with others because you need to be discipled, taught, trained, and held accountable. You need to try and fail and get up and try again. You need somebody to walk with you to help you learn through this life. What is the right way to respond? What is the wrong way to respond? When do I need to go back and ask for forgiveness and clear the air? And when do I need to get over my pride and forgive even though I feel hurt? That's not something you're going to come to on your own. That's why God knits us together with the body of believers. This high bar of righteousness is something you learn and grow in over the course of your life. I'll put it to you like this. When I think about my three sons... Think about this. My boys are, by nature and by name, McGraw men. That's what they are. They're my sons. They get my name. They are McGraw men. They always will be because that is the name that they have been given, having been born into my family. And as McGraw men, there's a certain level of behavior and conduct that they will be held to and will be expected of them in the way that they treat others, in the way that they treat women, in the way that become a husband and a father. There's a standard and an expectation that will be placed upon them as McGraw men. They are McGraw men. And yet if you've seen me in the lobby with them, you realize that at seven, five, and three years old, they are anything but men. At this point, right? Why? Because they're learning and they're growing and they're being taught day by day by day what it means to lead and first what it means to follow, what it means to serve others, what it means to be a part of a community and a part of a family. And day after day, my wife and I are teaching them through our words and our actions and our accountability to them what it means to be responsible, what it means to have integrity what a husband looks like, and what a father looks like. And over time, they will grow and become what they already are. They are McGraw men, but they are not yet McGraw men. This is how it is with the Lord. He has called you by his name. You have been born again into the family of God. You are now his. You belong to him. That's not going to ever change. He's not going to revoke that or take that back or get rid of you. You are his. And when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ upon you. When God looks at you, he sees righteousness. But when you look upon you, you don't always see righteousness. You see the gaps and you see the flaws. Why? Because you're learning. You're growing. And day by day, you're being taught and you're figuring out how to live a more righteous life. And you look to your heavenly father to help you become what he has already deemed that you are. You both are righteous and you are becoming righteous. Just don't become self-righteous. And this is where this part of living in the kingdom bites a lot of us. 
Because we think, again, path of least resistance. If I can display my moral superiority, and pastor said I need to live a morally exemplary life, and I did say that, and you should aspire to that, but you should also remember your incredible inability to do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. And the path to righteousness is set upon the slippery slope of pride. And it's so easy to think that my behavior will tell the world something about how great I am. But David wrote it beautifully in Psalm 23. He said, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Not my namesake, for his namesake. The reason you pursue a life of right living, a righteous life, a morally exemplary life is not for your glory, it's for his. It's that people would see, I know what you used to be and I know what you're capable of, but I'm not seeing that anymore. I don't know why that is. Why are you not the way that you once were? And you go, not by my power, not by my strength, but by the spirit of the living God. Jesus met me, redeemed me, restored me, made me new and turned my life around. Give him the glory the credit for the way that I am now. Jesus leads you in paths of righteousness that his name might get the glory. This is why kingdom citizens pursue this type of life. That means no matter what we do, we do it right. We give God highest and best, not good enough, not what everybody else does. We give him what he is owed. We pursue and contend for righteousness. Because that is the portion that God has given to us so that this world would see him as he truly is, as a God who can turn any life around. So what will you find in the kingdom of God? You will find a people who have received right standing with the Lord through Jesus and who now live life upright, who are both righteous and becoming righteous that God might get the glory from their lives. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. Second thing found in the kingdom of God is peace, which is great because peace does not happen naturally. I assume we all know the second law of thermodynamics, right? <laughs> Do we not send out the homework? Okay, there was a read ahead. I'm sorry, you didn't get, okay. Let me clear it up for you. The second law of thermodynamics is considered one of the most far-reaching and robust laws of nature. It states that the total amount of entropy in a closed system can never decrease. Are we clear now? <laughs> All right, let's keep, let's keep working on it. Let's keep working on it. I didn't know what level we were at. I thought, okay. Entropy is the degree of disorder. And so the second law of thermodynamics states that the degree of disorder, the degree of chaos, the degree of movement in any system, in anything, will never get less. It will only get greater. The second law of thermodynamics states that all things in nature, even down to a molecular level, tend towards disorder, not towards order. Which means that peace does not happen naturally. Things tend towards chaos and dysfunction, not function. Maybe you're looking at your life and going like, oh, that explains it. <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> Might be a little bit your fault, but just also know that 
Things do not tend towards peace. They do not tend towards harmony. They do not, do not tend towards order or function. They order towards chaos and dysfunction, which means that if you want peace in your life, you will have to contend for it. You will have to fight for it. You will have to go and get it and find it and do things that are unnatural in order to experience something that is supernatural. Peace does not happen naturally. There's three types of peace I want to talk about quickly this morning. The first is peace with God. Much like the righteousness that we receive, it is Christ who makes peace between us and God by allowing our sin against God to be forgiven and reconciling us to him. Paul says this, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our faith in Christ that justifies us before God, that makes peace with him. And to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be at peace with the king. You cannot be an enemy of the king and live in his kingdom. And so it's through Christ and him alone that we have peace with God. And that peace with God allows us to have the peace of God. It's the second type of peace that I want to talk about. This is an, an inner peace. It's the peace of God within your soul. And the peace of God comes from knowing that you are at peace with God. It comes from knowing that you are accepted, that you are loved, that you are forgiven. It comes by knowing that God smiles upon you and when he looks at you, he sees a son and a daughter that he's proud of and that he loves. It comes from remembering what God has done to bring you back into good standing with him. It comes from remembering all that God has forgiven you of. It comes from remembering what Jesus did on the cross. It comes from remembering the sovereignty of God and that he is in control of all things, even what you're in the middle of. There is a peace of God that settles upon us when we fix our minds on the reality that I am at peace with God. Isaiah 26 says, he, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is what? Stayed on you because he trusts you. So a mind that is fixated and obsessed with and focused on what the Lord has done, how God has loved, how faithful the Lord has been, how capable your God is, a mind that stays right there is a mind that will be kept in perfect peace because that is a mind that knows I can trust the Lord. It produces the peace of God that allows you to say, if God's not worried about it, then I won't be either. Teacher, teacher, the wind and the waves and the storm and you're, and you're sleeping. Did you not think that I could handle that? Peace, be still. What were you talking about? You were, wor you were concerned? And you go, oh, oh, there's a peace, there's a peace that, that surpasses my ability to understand it. And it produces a, a, a strength in, in my spirit that guards my heart and guards my mind from the anxiety of the world. When, when I live a life that is fixed on the goodness and the power and the glory and the love of God, my heart is guarded from going places it should not go. And my mind is protected from thinking thoughts I should not think. Because when my mind is fixed on the Lord, when it's stayed on him, I am kept in a perfect peace. Because I know I can trust him. One definition I read of this type of peace described it as the welfare of the soul. 
And I love that, that no matter what is going on around you, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is coming against you, inside my soul, I'm healthy, and I'm strong, and I'm kept at peace. And we all know this has been said of peace many times, but it's always worth saying again. Peace does not come in the absence of trouble. The Bible is clear. In this world, you will have trouble. Peace does not come in the absence of trouble. Peace comes in the presence of God. And so if your life is always tending towards disorder, tending towards chaos, tending towards dysfunction, and you don't know what to do with that or how to respond to that or what to make of it, instead of trying to just change your circumstances, drag your circumstances and your worry into the presence of God. And fix your mind on who he is and what he's done and what he's capable of. Stay your mind on his promises. Stay your mind on his word. And remember that the peace of God is a fruit of the spirit. It's given to you by him. It doesn't happen naturally. It needs a catalyst. And in the same way that Jesus is the catalyst that makes peace between you and God, When you receive the peace of God, you become the catalyst that allows you to make peace between you and others. That's the third type of peace that I want to talk about. You have the peace with God, the peace of God, and that produces peace with others. Remember, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace finders, not the peace inheritors, not even the peacekeepers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, which means you have to go and make peace. It's not going to happen by ignoring it. It's not going to happen by waiting. It's going to happen when you make it happen, when the Spirit of God helps you make it happen. And so we, as kingdom citizens then, are a people who pursue peace, which means that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we do not promote division, nor are we unnecessarily offensive. And it would be easy to do that. If you all knew me back when, you would know how easy it would be for me to do that. And I thank God that he has redeemed me of that. So we don't do anything that would unnecessarily cause offense or promote division within the church or the house of the Lord. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about here that would do that. And there's a lot of ways that we could talk about it here that would do that. And it's not that some of those topics aren't important, like politics. I'm not saying that's not important. What I'm saying is that there's something infinitely more important to me. And that before I'm a citizen of the United States, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I've traded in one passport for the other. And as much as I could harp and and, and talk about political agendas and issues, there's a divine mandate that I've been given from God that says you ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So my highest goal is not personal preference or opinion or thinking I'm going to legislate this world into the kingdom. Uh Uh-uh. The law did that, tried to do that. Jesus gave us the perfect law. He didn't mess it up. We did. And we're out here thinking the perfect laws will finally make us something that only Jesus can make us. That's just how I see it. I'm not saying we don't do it. But I'm saying there's a time and a place and a setting. And this room on these days is for us to recognize that we are one body through one baptism under one savior, one king, one rule, and one reign. And we are better when we are together. We are better when we are at peace one to another. 
And my prioritization in this house is that you and I stay reconciled together. That we keep marching forward on kingdom business, on the prerogative and the mandate that God has given us as the people of God. We're going to keep going that way. And I pray for our nation and we'll vote the best way we know how and we'll do all of that. But this will not become that place because this is kingdom territory. And in the kingdom of God, peace is our responsibility. Romans 12, 18, as far as it be with you, as far as it be with who? As far as it be with you, live peaceably with all. There was an expectation on your life to be a peacemaker, to be a reconciler, to be a restorer of relationship. There's an expectation on your life to build bridges, not just identify gaps, but build a bridge. There's a big difference between saying there's a problem in society and being a bridge that provides a solution to it. We are called to be peacemakers, not observers where peace ought to be. Okay, I'm off my notes, but I'm just talking. There's a peace with God, the peace of God that produces peace with others, which means what? We realize that we're in this together. We're in it as a family and we're better when we're reconciled. We're better when we are together. So what will you find in the kingdom of God? You will find a people who are at peace with God and as such, they carry with them the peace of God and it transforms their every relationship because they give to others what they have been given from God, a peace that surpasses understanding. Lastly, the third thing found in the kingdom of God is joy. My favorite story on joy comes from Acts 13. In Acts 13, you have Paul and Barnabas and the apostles, and they are teaching in Antioch in Pisidia. And they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, to Jews and Gentiles. Now, formerly, this was a gospel message that was just preached to Jews. And then Paul got a revelation from the Lord that called him to not just preach to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. And so now he begins the process of taking this message out of the synagogue and into the streets. And he's inviting those who do not have a Jewish heritage, who are not formally a part of this covenant, who are not formally a part of this family. And he's preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their sins can be forgiven too. That God loves them too. And God made them in his image as well. And God offers them eternal life in his presence through the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross. And this is setting the minds of the Gentiles on fire. This is like like oxygen to them. This is like a breath of fresh air because they're hearing something they had never heard before. They were included in something they were never included in before. And so they're having this great moment and they're saying, man, come back next week and teach again. Come back next week and teach again. And you have the Jewish leaders who are hating this because they think Paul and Barnabas are false teachers. They think they're teaching something outside of the Hebrew Bible, something that's not true. And so they wanted to persecute them. And they realized that if you want something done right, get the women to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying what the Bible says. It says, so they got the devout women of high standing and also some of the leading men of the city. But it led with the devout women because we all know what's going on here. It said they got the devout women of the the city and some of the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and the apostles. And they did it. And they did it well. 
And so not only were they persecuted, they were driven out of the town. It's like, man, imagine starting a beautiful church in a beautiful place, and man, just a few weeks into it, everybody comes against you and drives you out, and all that progress you thought you made, you're going like, man, I wonder if that mattered. Like, like God, I thought you had sent us there, but now we're being sent from there. Like, man, like how discouraging and frustrating would that be? Except that's not how they respond. Acts 13, 51 and 52, it says, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) There's this reality in the kingdom of God that says if you've got persecution, then you've got joy. You got pain in your life? Well, you got joy in your life too. You're afraid of something? Joy. Rejected by someone, joy. There is something that wells up within us, no matter the situation or the circumstance, because joy is not based on what happens to me. I cannot control what happens to me. My mama always taught me, you can't control everything, but the one thing you can control is your attitude. Just if you know what my problem was growing up. I can't control what's happening, but I can control how I respond to it. And no matter what comes against me in this life, no matter what problems come my way, the one thing that is always true is that I can always find a reason to praise. I can always find a reason to rejoice in my God. Because even if I'm driven out of a city, if I'm rejected by man, if the plans I made for my life aren't going the way I thought they ought to go, if things are happening against me, there is something within me that comes up out of me. Because joy is not something that comes from you, it's given to you. It is a fruit of the spirit evidence of the living God within your soul. So when it happens, my question is what rises up within you? When things don't go your way, what is produced in your spirit? Because if the peace of God settles us, the joy of the Lord advances us. Because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. It keeps me strong and gives me strength to carry on. Every morning I wake up glad that I've got breath in my lungs. No matter what's happening, I can rejoice. I've got a song in my mouth because God has woken me up to a new day and he is with me on today. It keeps me moving forward in my mission. No matter what comes against us, resists us, stops us from moving, man, there is a song of praise in my heart that I'm not going to stop singing because the way that you combat fear, the way that you combat anxiety, Depression, frustration, pain, it's by rejoicing. Paul says, don't even be surprised, beloved, when you encounter the fiery trials of life. Instead, rejoice and praise him and worship him for who he is and what he has done because that fruit comes from the spirit of the living God. All it takes is you to activate it with your mouth. To believe in your heart and to remember on who he is and what he has done for you. Man, Jesus came to reconcile you to God. You who were once far off from him have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. And he gives you a peace that surpasses all understanding. It guards your heart. It protects you. It's not a peace that avoids conflict. It's a peace that runs into conflict but maintains a guarded heart and a protected mind because the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's why we sing in this church the way we sing. And I can tell you these worshipers who worship extra hard, it's because they know him. 
because they have been through things or are going through things. And the greatest weapon of their warfare is the joyful song of praise in their heart that exalts the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and recognizes he is sovereign over all things. And all he's done for me is all I need him to do for me. I've got the joy. I've got the joy. I've got the joy of the Lord. Deep down in my soul, I've got the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. David says, oh my soul, why are you downcast within me? What's wrong with you? Remember your Lord. Remember your God and your Savior. And rejoice. Here's the reality. When sin enters a heart, it corrupts the soul. And where sin is present, joy is not, and peace is not, and righteousness is not. But where the Holy Spirit is filling a heart, he's filling it with joy. And where the Holy Spirit is filling a heart, he's filling it with peace. And where the Holy Spirit is filling a heart, he's filling it with righteousness. Paul says the kingdom of God, the life that you live here on earth, this invisible and valuable internal kingdom that resides within you and overflows out of you, it's not about what you eat and what you drink. It's about righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus given to you. It's about peace, peace with God that produces peace, peace within you. It's about a joy that strengthens you for every day of your life. This is why kingdom citizens are undefeatable because you cannot war against those types of invisible weapons. So when the Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, not with power, not with might, but by the spirit of the living God, this is the greatest weapon citizens of the kingdom have. And this is why no matter what happens in the world around us, people look and ought to look at this place and go, man, y'all really not from around here, are you? Y'all are different. How do I get a taste of what you have? And the goodness of your life ought to make one name great, King Jesus.